Hello, listeners, and welcome back to This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, a podcast program of the Black and African Diaspora Forum from Monmouth University. I'm Hedy V. William, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, we have Dr. Chris Willoughby, author of Masters of Health, Racial Science and Slavery in U.S. Medical Schools, set to publish with University of North Carolina Press this fall. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for uh, agreeing to do this interview today. And so today we are going to talk about race science in U.S. medical schools, the subject of the book. It's an important subject for obvious reasons because of our, our current moment including race and the impact of COVID-19 on the Black community. Um, This is coupled with the fact that some in the medical community still cling to racist notions about the Black body, especially when it comes to subjects such as Black women's maternal health. First, we will discuss Dr. Willoughby's research and teaching interests, and then we will go into a more in-depth discussion of his book, Master's of health. So Chris, tell us a little bit about your um, teaching and uh, research background. Well, thanks so much. Again, um, I'm a visiting assistant professor this year at Pitzer College in Claremont, California. And my teaching really exists at this intersection between the history of slavery, history of medicine, and history of racial thinking. Um, and uh, I started with a, my PhD, um, or I started my PhD at Tulane University about 12 years ago after finishing a BA at College of Charleston in South Carolina. And I, I started with this um, kind of uh, first an interest in Southern history, then realizing that the South is not a kind of self-contained unit, but rather a, a multicultural zone in the United States. And I also was kind of interested in this paradox of how such a kind of Poorly, uh, poorly supported idea like race has continues to have so much. Or the scientific concept of race has so much valence, despite having so terrible evidence, such terrible evidence. Um, and so at Tulane, I uh, got to work with some really fantastic scholars in the history of Atlantic slavery that helped connect both this kind of intellectual question or question of intellectual history to how it materially affected people on the ground in the system of slavery. So in the last few years, I've taught courses at multiple institutions on, uh, including Emory University and Penn State on race and medicine in U.S. history, where we chart what is kind of my uh, intellectual master narrative of how race becomes into vogue in the 17th century or starts to then gets adopted by the medical profession more in mass in the 18th and 19th centuries before coming very much embedded and uh, internalized today. So I've also taught courses on slavery and freedom in the black Atlantic, which are you know really exciting surveys that put in conversation, these kind of racist uh, white supremacist histories with the people they were meant to oppress and how they engaged with uh, enslavement, well, how they resisted lived with and understood their own enslavement. So um, I've really tried to contextualize this larger uh, history of the rise of the race concept 
within the material world of people that it affected. Yeah, in this book, particularly about the medical schools, I want it's making me think about actually um, one of my favorite books is um, uh, Jim Down's Maladies of Empire, and how there's just like a rising, you know, school of thought looking at race, medicine, empire in the Atlantic world context. So it's very fascinating. I'm wondering, you said you taught, you know, uh, several courses at across different uh, institutions. And I'm wondering, um, one of my questions is really about how we, how this book might become useful, not only in the classroom, but outside of the classroom and how, especially now in the anti-CRT environment, how students respond to this subject matter of looking at race, empire, medicine. And, and, you know, we can get to that question in a few minutes, but so why study history is one of my favorite questions that I like to ask every guest that happens to be a historian. Um, how did you, how did you come to the study of history in particular? And this is such, you know, this topic in particular race and history. Well, I think I, I, uh, I came to history and uh, I try to be, you know, so much of us in academia, I love interdisciplinary work, but I I love history because there is a very clear record with questions that are answerable through sources, if that that makes sense. Whereas I think, um, and we can see outcomes in a way that other fields have to, they're working more on the present, have to live in that ambiguity. So I think one of the things that so much appeals to me is about history is when we think about current kind of political fracturing today, we can go back and actually look at previous episodes of political fracturing. Not like I've been very much interested in the rise of kind of sectionalism that led to the civil war, um, ideologies like race that justify uh, certain types of labor exploitation. And these things, humans are always the future is always different from the past, but the past very much can tell us a lot about how the future will happen as well. And that, so that paradox always drew me to it. And then how to, to get at race was, yeah, uh, trying to understand why, I mean, it's, it seems so naive uh, at this point in my life, but why, how slavery became transitioned from in the 18th century, generally, a uh, something that elite white commenters would kind of say was you know ethically bad to by the time of the lead up to the civil war people like john c calhoun were arguing that slavery is a positive good so how i I was very much intrigued and and kind of how how people came to internalize and and believe things like slavery could be good which it's you know obviously a, one of the most, if not the most, inhuman, especially American chattel slavery, inhuman, awful institutions in the planet. So that paradox of how everyday normal people come to internalize and accept gross brutality in their society. And history very much was a way of, of trying to comprehend and understand that because you know war still happen, exploitation still happens. Um, routinely. So trying to understand, use that history, that clear documentary record to reconstruct this. And then I just started finding a lot of people with MD after their names in, in these uh, histories. So it uh, kind of 
came into this project where I started really interested in racial science, pro-slavery theory in the 19th century U.S., um, and started noticing that the kind of chief proponents of racial science were medical professors, were doctors, and thus that there might be something uh, bigger, a bigger story there, and one with resonances in the present rather than just a self-contained history of pro-slavery theory. Since slavery was abolished, if it didn't have resonances afterwards, it would be more of an individual case study, if that makes sense. No, sure. I, um, I, I'm very interested in the question of the archive, so I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, uh, press you too much about this clear line from evidence to, you know, uh, events and what the archive, uh, what, how do we define the archive? It, it, but that question anyway feeds into my next question about methods and approaches to sources in your work. I mean, because what, these medical doctors are saying in the most part is reflecting the world they live in, you know, in the 18th century, 19th century. So using those sources uh, produced by these medical doctors, first of all, what type of sources were you confronted with uh, is the first part of this question. The second part is, well, methods, you know, how um, not everybody likes to talk methods, but I I like to talk methods. My colleagues kind of, Give me a little bit about that, but it's our theory. Speak, speak to us, yeah. Speak to us about sources. You know the sources that you utilized, and then methods. Well, uh, you definitely found a welcome uh, person. I love talking methods, and uh, yeah. and my and my methods also evolved from dissertation to book. So it's something mm-hmm. that that I that I have been thinking a lot about. So the core original set of sources uh, for, for the, for the dissertation. And then, you know, it's very heavily revised, but what's become the book and reorganized out of the research, but was this at the university of Pennsylvania and the medical, what's now the medical university of South Carolina, but was then the medical college of South Carolina in Charleston were sets of thousands of medical student dissertations from the, uh, before the civil war. And uh, about 2,000 at each institution. And I also consulted some at Transylvania University, uh, which is now a liberal arts college, but was a prominent medical school at the time. And the University of Nashville, which is now Vanderbilt's uh, medical school. And so what I was interested in was we, we, we have a lot of histories that engage with racial science, who are racial scientists like Josiah Knott, like Samuel George Morton, who people knew were doctors and medical professors, but there wasn't a lot of interrogation of how their ideas were received and whether or not their ideas came into the medical school. So in looking at these thousands of theses, I was able to map in how students discuss race, the kind of reverse and how, what the actual curriculum was at the medical school. And so reading reading for quotes from professors, from lectures, you find quotes in these medical student dissertations, one that came up in multiple dissertations from the University of Pennsylvania. In the 1850s, they quoted their anatomy professor, Joseph Leidy, saying that there were more differences between black and white people, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, than there were between a lion and a tiger. Yet nobody uh, suggested describing lions and tigers as the same species. So his point was that he was literally telling his students that black and white people were different species. They had different anatomies. And then the students would then 
internalize this, listen to this, multiples of the multiple students quoted this in their dissertation. And their dissertation was an argument in support of the theory of polygenesis that each human race, quote unquote, was a um, different species. So I also cross-reference these dissertations with medical professors' notes themselves, medical textbooks. I found that in the similar uh, phenomena was happening in the textbooks and particularly from faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. And then in the last couple of years, I had the the real luck of being a long-term fellow at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York City um, with some really amazing cohort of scholars and got exposed to um, not just uh, I had read microhistory before, but the um, new archival turn that's going on right now in African-American studies through people's work like Sadia Hartman, Marissa Fuentes, Georgia Cooper Owens, um, to kind of think about the, uh, you know, reading against the archival grain, which I think is a, you know, paraphrasing uh, another historian, I think Ann Stoller. Um, but this notion that we can read sources um, and try and find evidences of the people who are not speaking, the people who are oppressed. So I have one chapter where I look at uh, a catalog from Harvard Medical School's skull collection and use what evidentiary shreds in combination with historians' uh, previous work to tease out some biographies and causes of two um, men of African descent who ended up being uh, their final resting place being on a shelf in a set of racial skulls in Harvard's medical uh, museum. So on the one hand, I would say my methods are, are kind of very traditional archival methodology and, and also using certain sources, even student sources to read um, a little bit against that grain to find what their professors were looking. But I'm also really interested in the, the, the archival term as we're kind of calling it in African-American studies going on right now that, People like Jim Downs, you also mentioned, does really well in Malady's Empire. Yeah, sure. I it makes me, you know, now that you mentioned, um, it, it makes me think. Is a little off topic, but it makes me think about the recent uh, discussion about the children, uh, the remains of the children from the mm-hmm. move bombing in um, 1985 Philadelphia, and the remains of those children and how they were mishandled by these schools. And so I imagine looking at these dissertations and these students who I'm sure some of whom pushed back against the professor, you know, in their dissertations uh, and sort of to, to get at what people are thinking at the time or experts are thinking at the time. So it just, it just dawned on me even now, like one of my questions that we'll get to, is to think about the long impact of this history on the present. You know, just in the last two, three decades, we're still talking about how the remains of these Black children were being mishandled by these institutions. So I think that's a, 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 a great discussion we could have about archives, methods, and approaches. And, um, you know, redefining the archive, as you said, what is what's happening right now. But let's let's turn more directly to your book, and um, you know, tell us a little bit more. Lay out the the subject matter and the main premise of your book, 
Masters of Health. So the book tracks, um, at, at its core premise, it tracks two trends. Um, that is this kind of growing, uh, to the extent there is one, growing political divide over slavery, but also growing um, kind of ideological solidarity around uh, a belief in the, the race concept. And on the other hand, from that's, you know, starting with, we'll say, the 1760s through up to the Civil War, you have a century of debates over slavery, um, a century of kind of discussions defining what race means in the United States. And while there's some regional variation, um, uh, there is obviously a dispute over slavery based on region, but a lot of shared ideology around white supremacy. Then the second major trend is the founding of medical schools in the United States during this era. So the first medical school in the United States is will be is at the institution that will eventually become known as the University of Pennsylvania, and that's in 1765. Um, worth noting, in 1763, faculty from that founded Penn started doing public lectures, uh, public anatomy lectures, and actually publicly dissected uh, a black man. Um, and then... Throughout the 18th century, medical schools remained pretty small. Uh, they're, you know, maybe a handful by the end of the 18th century, and they graduate less than 500 students. But from 1840 to 1859, so the, the two decades with the kind of really peaking uh, of this kind of sectional debate over slavery amongst uh, uh, white voters, uh, white male voters, um, that also coincides with 30,000 MDs being produced. So you, and there are more than 50 schools by in the U S by the time of the civil war spread in the South, Southeast, Midwest and Northeast. Um, and there's one medical school, I believe it's actually something that I figured out after the book that was kind of founded and fails on the West coast in the late 1850s. Um, but so primarily, um, you know, East of the Mississippi river, uh, but, so just as medical schools are being constructed, the country is in a long century of first coming together in, during the revolution and then kind of collapsing under the weight of the contradiction of a slaveholding republic um, or a slaveholding democracy and, and especially the rise of um, free labor in the Northeast. Uh, so uh, what happens is that these faculty um, happen to also be, oh, so the third kind of trend or the third trend that comes out of this debate over slavery and science is the theory of polygenesis and its rise in hegemony. So for thousands of years, uh, basically in, you know, we'll say Western white Christendom, um, most people believed that all humans were the same species to the extent they knew about kind of phenotypical differences that we now group into races, they might have stereotypes, negative stereotypes about black people, but they didn't believe that, um, you know, you couldn't breed together, for example, where there were these inherited bodily differences, certainly not on the level that they did in the 18th and 19th century. But in the 18th century, that kind of belief in a single human race begins to crack during the Enlightenment and in the two decades before Darwin's theory of the origin of the species, it becomes very much the vogue in American science and in American medicine 
that each race was created distinctly by God for a different climate on a different continent, basically. Um, and, uh, and they're distinct species. So these three trends kind of collide in the medical school. And before the medical school really becomes a place with scientific guardrails, as imperfect as they are in the 21st century, we should be clear on that. It becomes normalized to discuss race in the curriculum. Race is accepted as having medical, biological features, even as there are some disagreements uh, over what they mean. But there, a broad premise is accepted, and you can see this in every medical school in the United States. Certainly, everyone that I've studied, which is you know uh, a good chunk, and, and many of the leading ones, um, an acceptance that race has a medical, scientific, and biological meaning, and that will, I argue, have destructive long-term consequences um, because. Afterwards, race gets revised in the Darwinian revolution, in eugenics, but the fundamental premise that there are biological races has been very difficult to actually extricate from medical research uh, in the present and and in the centuries afterwards. Sure. It's a devastating long-term impact that we still see at the present. But can you give us, you know, our listeners, some of whom may not know, you know, what is a working definition of race and a race science? I mean, you're tracing the intellectual history, the history of this idea. So this is, I think, definitely an intellectual history, history of science, complicating the boundaries between science and culture. Um, I think with these three main trends that you have, uh, a lot is happening with this book. But, you know, Tell our listeners, like, you know, what is race? If somebody were to come to you, oh, I wrote a book about race and science and medicine, and they were to ask you, what is race? What would be your response? Well, and I, I should say that there are uh, ways in, in kind of more popular culture today that race is used that I'm not inherently in endorsing or criticizing. But the race in this context is an idea that roughly takes on coherence during the Enlightenment, that each essentially skin color group, even as much as there are actually so many internal contradictions in these um, and not every quote unquote black person's skin looks the same, not every Asian person's skin, but basically that there are five groups that enlightenment scientists uh, pinpoint. And this begins with Carolus Linnaeus, the Swiss botanist, that these groups are exist indefinitely um, and they'd be, Usually, usually the five are, and it's not always five. Sometimes it's 25. This is the race concept is very malleable um, and self-contradictory, but would be Pacific Islander, uh, a kind of generic Asian, but that would refer to as East Asian. So not, you know, South Indi- South Asians from like the Indian subcontinent usually are not included in that. Uh, whites or Caucasians, Native Americans, and then um, Africans. And uh, going back to Linnaeus's first um, uh, kind of publication of the system of nature, uh, th- these groups have specific phenotypes. Black people have curly hair, dark skin. I mean, obviously, call them black people. That uh, that's that's the phrase that's created. Um, Americans have spe- Native Americans, as they would say, have specific phenotypical traits. Um, and then what gets kind of glommed onto these are medical beliefs about. Uh, 
resistance to certain diseases. But the core race concept would be that there are these distinct groups on a biological uh, level and that, you know, racism is the act of treating people um, in hierarchies based on these uh, race, based on this false race concept. And there, you know, we can get into why the race concept mm-hmm. does not make sense and is fundamentally contradictory, but that, that kind of sets out the basic premise of it. Sure. And, and what your book is doing is helping us trace the, the history of the idea of race over time in these medical schools and discourses. It, it is, you know, demonstrating to us uh, race as a construction over time yeah. in a shifting idea. And race science really gets into the, the science of describing these. So in the 19th century, that would be anatomical differences and craniometry. So collecting thousands of skulls, measuring their internal capacity, and then divide, saying that these statistically kind of uh, correlated internal capacities exactly conform to these groups and thus say a hierarchy about intelligence. Um, you know, uh, And then that will evolve into, even though physical anthropologists will continue to work in that vein well into the 20th century, um, uh, it slowly evolves into things that are more tied to genetics, eugenics obviously being the big one, selective breeding, it's in your genes that cause you to be inferior um, rather than your anatomical confirmation, which is the 19th century marker. Today, most most racial scientific discourse happens in the theater of genetics with a little bit of physical right. anthropology. Sure. Right. Because it, obviously the early 20th century, the race concept gets attacked, you get Boaz and the theory of mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this 19th century version gets, you know, um, more or less dismantled by this group of mainly we should, you know, mention Jewish scientists who are studying culture and anthropology by the 20th century. But it's a, it's a, it's a great book for us to think about race as a construction over time and really expose it as an unstable concept, you know, as we trace its history, as you do in your book and looking at these uh, medical doctors and their ideas so tell us a little bit, I, I want to reserve this question that I had about the use of the book in the classroom and for public policy implications, because I think it does have great uh, implications for public policy and in medical schools and teaching of future doctors. But I want to go to this, since we're on this conversation about race as a concept and race science, um, you use this phrase, critical racial gaze. Uh, as applied in your work. Um, Tell us a little bit more about that critical racial gaze and these um, doctors that you're studying. Oh, and I should say that's a a clinical racial gaze. And and that comes from kind of the colliding of of two two ways of seeing the body, one emerging out of the medical profession and one emerging out of what we might think of kind of the slave purchasers mentality. So the, the clinical gaze, it's a term that was coined in the sixties by the theorist, Michel Foucault. Um, it's not too much theory in the book overall, but, um, 
And it's this way that in the 19th century, um, the anatomist gaze, the ability to correlate. Or, okay, well, I'm going to reset. Um, so in the 18th century, physicians would diagnose disease through superficial surface level bedside readings of one's symptoms. And then, and they, they, so a disease could be characterized by fever, headache, loose bowels. Um, sorry, you have a historian of medicine on. Um, in the 19th century, they defined a disease by the way it um, attacks your internal body. So disease becomes defined through autopsy, through seeing the mm. effects of, uh, of, of, of a malady on your organs rather than through symptoms. So, uh, for example, cholera would become to be defined as an intestinal disease because of uh, lesions on your intestines that could be seen post-mortem. At the same time, race transitions into a different way of seeing the body. Um, and that's from, in the 18th century, Benjamin Rush, uh, American physiologist, uh, you know, signer of the Declaration of Independence, abolitionist, um, but also, uh, I think we could say a racial scientist in his own right, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's medical school. He says that blackness is a, is a form of leprosy. In short, it's, it's, it's something that can be understood symptomatically and it, through symptoms being one's phenotype, uh, if you're, if you're a black person, um, and it could be cured. Uh, whereas in the 19th century, the anatomists come into greater popularity in the medical school and in racial science. And increasingly, as we discussed uh, in, in, in the, the kind of racial science, um, one's race, you could be similar to this kind of concept of the one drop rule that's so famous in American race history, is that one could be anatomically black, even if you had white skin. So, uh, the clinical racial, racial gaze is the ability to see these internal markers like distinctive cranial capacity um, on and map that onto a living black person. So uh, when a clinical gaze, as someone who had done many autopsies, could diagnose what was happening to the inside of your body from reading the surface. So a racial scientist in the 1850s claimed, claimed, mind you, that they could you know, judge your uh, cranial capacity from reading the outside of your skull. Like uh, there were cases I discussed in my book where physicians were called in expert witnesses. And it's worth noting that for the most part, um, physicians, while they were starting to give more testimony in court, they weren't overly respected still. Um, so uh, most often judges were making their own judgment call rather than listening to the medical professor overly. But they're starting to gain this hegemony in this period or this power in this period. But there was a case uh, where Robert Gibbs, a racial scientist in Columbia, South Carolina and physician was called to testify to decide whether or not um, a woman, an enslaved woman of uh, supposed or believed native American descent was suing for freedom. And Gibbs took a skull or a cast of a skull. This was, these casts were actually made, by Samuel Morton, famous racial scientist in Philadelphia, and sold to the College of South Carolina, now the University of South Carolina. Um, so Gibbs takes this uh, cranium of an uh, like kind of what's supposed to be the you know ideal 
black crania and holds it next to the Native American woman's head, this is according to newspaper reports, and shows that her head is so different from the skull that she could not be black and thus is not enslavable. So, um, and mind you, he's a big pro-slavery theorist, so it's a kind of irony that he ends up helping in her uh, liberation. But the point of the clinical racial gaze is this ability to define race, not just by how one looks, but through indefinable, or only an expert could define, uh, uh, or uh, could, only an expert could analyze one's body and divine, we'll almost say, their race. You could say, present a hundred, like, as white as possible, but in theory, a racial scientist could assess your body and define whether or not you had any black ancestry. So that's how this clinical clinical racial gaze emerges is through this confluence of um, of this anatomist gaze uh, and pathologist gaze with that of the slaveholder who's trained in reading black people's bodies or they perceive themselves. Mind you, all of this is self-perception of mastery. Uh, all of this is self-perception of expertise. They're not really able to do these things. And it's, you know, the interesting, it just makes me look at it from the perspective because I'm a 20th century Americanist. And it makes me think about how you're tracing this history, this long history uh, of this clinical racial gaze and then how it gets used um, and deployed, but also enters a popular, you know, the popular imagination to the point where we haven't let it go. Because when we talk about black bodies, you know, what? in terms of anatomy, you know, how large is your nose or how big is your butt? You know, we, we have that like language that's still with us when we're talking about the black body versus the white body. And, um, so like tracing this long history of this, uh, of these conversations about bodies and anatomy is like very fascinating. I think. Uh, a history. No, it's so you're, really, you're, yeah, sorry. I'm still, no, no, absolutely. It's, it's made me, it just popped into my head and make me think about that. How in the popular uh, discourse about bodies and, um, but so it links us to our next question, which is about the racial anatomist and your chapter about Jeffries Wyman. Um, tell us a little bit more about him and these uh, racial, the racial anatomists. Well, he is a really interesting character and one that, and, and it goes to a kind of a larger uh, point in the book, um, is that there are so many, most historians of racial science uh, focus on a fairly relatively well-known within the circles of academia cast of characters, but they had so many friends, so many colleagues that, either wrote like one article out of their 50 articles on race or taught it in a medical school. And Jeffries Wyman was someone who really fascinated me because he's not that overly associated with this kind of pro polygenesis movement. Um, But when I was going through his papers, because he's a professor, ultimately becomes a professor at Harvard, I found a lot about racial science from him. So Jeffries Wyman is a, uh, medical professor, uh, comparative anatomist, and he graduates, he's a Boston native, graduates from Harvard's medical school, I, I believe in the 
um, late 1830s. Uh, um, and sorry, yeah, I don't, not good at memorizing all of their graduation dates, but yeah, late 1830s. And so part of what I wanted to show is how somebody who graduated from medical school in this period internalized these ideas. So Wyman then gets his first major job at Hampton Sydney College, which is medical school in Richmond, Virginia, as their anatomist. And what I try and show is how Wyman on his everyday basis brought a really profoundly racist, racial essentialist gaze with him to the South. He, he loathed the South. He found the white people fairly distasteful, but um, he general, he was profoundly racist towards black people. Um, he used the N word much more often than most uh, people in, in this time period during, during his correspondence, but he becomes over time, a racial anatomist in, in Virginia with his students. He galvanizes, um, that means electric electrocutes, uh, kind of basically what, you know, the, the underlying science, we'll put that in quotes again, and, uh, behind like the Frankenstein concept, but they were really interested in electrocuting dead bodies at, during this time period. But so for his students, they galvanized an enslaved man's corpse. Um, and in the 1850s, Wyman, by this point, is a major collector for Harvard's medical museums. He's been hired. He gets hired at the same time as the famous infamous Louis Agassiz to be a professor of comparative anatomy in Harvard's new Lawrence School of Science. It's the first advanced school of science in the United States and comes from a huge donation from a cotton uh, or a textile manufacturer uh, um, in, in New England, who, you know, obviously is kind of th through second order profiting off of the cotton economy. But so so Wyman and Agassiz both come in with pretty entrenched racial science perspectives and supporters of the theory of polygenesis. And Wyman ends up in one case I show, he goes on a trip to collect specimens for the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. I believe that's the full title. Um, what's now the Peabody Museum. It wasn't called that then at Harvard. And he ends up in the Samaka Maroon community, one of the most storied and famous uh, communities of self-liberated enslaved people, uh, and it's located in Suriname. And he has this very well-developed racial gaze from his medical school days and, and his, his continued work on racial science, I should say. And Wyman sees them, rather than as having defeated the Dutch government in a kind of profound act of planning, agency, etc., sees them as having reverted to African barbarism. He, he, he also analyzes them uh, bathing in a very voyeuristic and grotesque way, uh, analyzes women, men, and makes the case that their, their ability to exist in the tropical sun unclothed, mind you, they're, they're you know, cooling off in the water, but he can't swim, so he doesn't really put that together very well, um, but that they're uh, thus ideally suited for slavery in the tropics, or at least for toil in the tropics. It's not 100% clear uh, whether or not Wyman was, he certainly wasn't an abolitionist, we'll put it that way. And he was certainly a racist uh, and was not ideologically, uh, politically trying to oppose slavery. Um, and then he also plays a big role in assembling the racial skull collection in Harvard's medical school, along with the uh, anatomist there, John Collins, or the 
previous anatomists there who taught Wyman himself, John Collins Warren, and Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., and another professor named J.B.S. Jackson. And Wyman ultimately also is critical in the dissection of uh, a man that I cover in a different chapter from South Africa, who ends up in a P.T. Barnum exhibit before taking his own life in Boston. And Wyman uh, dissects him and then writes a pamphlet on kind of cranial measurements, hip measurements of uh, South African uh, Khoisan indigenous people. Um, it, very, you know, profoundly white supremacist pamphlet that says the Khoisan are kind of has tables with gorilla skull measurements, Khoisan skull measurements, um, West African, uh, I believe, um, and then European, all in kind of comparison. So he he's a part of this larger movement, but he, I think what makes him very fascinating is that he's someone who doesn't actually devote his career to, to racial science, but it's just something that he takes as an organic part of being uh, a kind of life scientist and writes occasionally about it. But so we can see what a more typical uh, racial scientist was like a racial anatomist um, who was not kind of pathologically obsessed with pro-slavery racial science like Josiah Knott or uh, the infamous uh, uh, Louisiana physician Samuel Cartwright, but just believed it and occasionally wrote about it. And we see how thus, how normalized this kind of racial essentialism was in medicine and science. Right. The larger, you know, theme of your book about this, this race, science and medicine, you have mentioned in our conversation, some prominent institutions, you know, including, you know, UPenn and Harvard. So, you know, I don't know that how much we talk about that recent, recent story, about the fact that uh, Harvard holding remains of um, likely 19 enslaved individuals, you know, comes up in your conversation, these prominent institutions and their history, many of whom are, are looking back at their history and trying to, uh, you know, um, write or at least document their history. I think the, your book bringing these prominent institutions into the conversation in, in this history may have even led people to say, hey, we need to look at the medical schools and what they did in this history of race science. I mean, if it made that kind of impact, that would be very exciting um, and, and you know gratifying because that's, at the end of the, the book, I, I try to, you know, uh, yeah, say that what I think we, we should do moving forward, which is abandon this kind of racial thinking. And it's still... I've talked to colleagues in medical schools. It does still pop up, especially more so with older faculty who are less attuned to look for it. But um, I end with a study of UVA's medical school that showed that half of their students and residents um, in the medical school held beliefs that are essentially 19th century racial science, like black people having thicker skin, denser bones, being more insensitive to pain, and that these have treatment outcomes. So uh, or negative treatment outcomes for, for black people in the U S today. And that's so a big, yeah, a big theme of is that one of the big points of the book is that race naturalizes inequality. It's not, that's not an original insight to me, but, um, and that the scientific race concept emerged and took on valence in medical schools when slavery was much more under rhetorical attack and capable of being abolished. It had been in other places by the end of the, um, you know, by the 1860. Thus, um, is that 
this kind of ideology that naturalizes naturalized white supremacy then can be used to naturalize the reason why black people have lower life expectancy in this country um, and less resources, worse health care in poor and majority, uh, many majority uh, black areas, as well as uh, other racial groups who have, or we'll say ethnic, you know, they would call racial groups have come into the fore in the present uh, or become into kind of the American political discourse more since enslavement. But, you know, these ideologies naturalized extermination of Native Americans. So getting rid of this kind of hierarchy, in my opinion, is a key step towards getting, having no more excuses for the inequality in our system. Um, and then maybe we can tackle the inequality. Right. I mean, I think it's so important that you lay out this intellectual history of, of race science and its connection to what is happening among these medical doctors. And the point that you made about the fact that this belief that, you know, black people do not, you know, endure pain the same way, that right now in terms of black women's maternal health and um, prominence, you know, African-Americans such as uh, Serena Williams in her story, she was telling the doctors that, look, I'm in a lot of pain. There's something wrong. And they didn't believe her. They, they didn't believe that she was in pain. And so this idea that, you know, black folks, and black bodies um, experience pain in different ways. It's like you said, it's uh, unfortunately it seems to be still present in the medical establishment. When you have somebody as prominent as, as Serena Williams saying, the doctors didn't believe me. They didn't believe I was in pain. And then tie it to the quantitative data that we have regarding black women's maternal health is, um, you know, quite a sad commentary on, on this history, mm-hmm. but how let's, let's turn, let's talk to, you know, turn to your conclusions a bit here and, and talk about how your book might. And I, I happen to believe it might be very well used in a variety of courses, uh, not just um, the history of African-Americans, history of medicine, medicine, science, and so many different areas, but how might your work help us better understand our current moment and the same conversation about African-Americans and COVID. Now we have monkeypox <laughs> to contend with. Uh, but how might your work help us better understand this current moment that we face, not only as a society, but as, you know, the globe is really facing these different pandemics? Well, I think in uh, there are a couple of, of critical respects. So first, I think most of the ways this history is been written tends to focus on individual actors, thinkers, rather than institutions, if that that makes sense. Um, And institutions have much longer lifespans and uh, we'll say um, different centers of gravity than individuals who die or replace. Um, So in focusing on institutions first, I think you can then see a more clear linear history from uh, from some, say, the, the ideas that are emerging in the 18th century to their continued, uh, continued acceptance today. And I think most critically, what, what this type of history 
um, tells us about COVID. Um, uh, hopefully, hopefully, uh, not too much about monkeypox, but some, some about monkeypox. Well, uh, with there being a vaccine for that, we can knock on wood that maybe we'll, we'll do better with that one. But how race has functioned is our healthcare system. And especially early on when there was no vaccine, um, is very unequal, uh, in its people's ability to access high quality care, get off work if they're an essential worker, which poor people, which African-Americans are disproportionately poor. Um, poor people have more difficulty accessing care, both from kind of structural reasons like hospitals being less likely to be in their areas, but also inability to take time off work uh, and um, or not having access to health insurance. Um, and when we talk about... Uh, so... These are often the material things that cause differences. But early on in the pandemic, um, doctors, there was actually a very short piece in the Journal of the American Medical Association that said that it was a study of New York, um, people in New York with COVID coming through one or two hospitals. And it theorized that because of uh, a certain gene expression, um, and this is related to asthma, which has their genetic theories that black people get asthma more because of their genetic history. It's, it's not good science, but that was the foundation for the study and said that black people were, if I remember correctly, um, having worse COVID outcomes because of their, this genetic history. So they don't have any gene identified. They don't, I mean, they have like a theory, but there's not, you know, something they can show you on a microscope that proves this. Um, but what it ends up doing is says there's something in your body that is causing this disparity, not we have stacked the medical deck against you or the, or whether or not it was even active, the medical deck is stacked against you and you're having worse outcomes rather than admit that our system is fundamentally flawed, blame it on the race of the person. Um, and you know, most of this is very internalized. So, uh, especially within the medical profession, most of these people view themselves as liberal, progressive, well-meaning. Some of the people in that study are people of color themselves. People, uh, I believe, people of African descent themselves. Um, so it's not always from a malicious like the intent is there, but the function it serves is to normalize disparate rates of death for disease based on something that's uncontrollable. Uh, when we know, in fact, that poverty is is much more often the the most, that that intersects with racial, um, race as a social category. These are what is really the main driver of poor health outcomes. Right. So, absolutely. I think the long-term implications are with us as we look at these um, pandemics that we face now. So what do you think? What Can you give us a more hopeful, <laughs> some hope for the future in terms of how uh, medical schools today um, currently try to address racism? Have any of them do, done a better job than others? I, I, I'm of the opinion that there should be a course on the history of race science in 
medical schools. And I have no knowledge as to whether or not, you know, someone in, you know, medical school is actually getting a course on race and the history of race or, or history class at all for that matter. Maybe, maybe pre-med undergrad perhaps would have to be required to take such a course, but in terms of medical schools, are they doing any better now from your knowledge? So I would say there is reason to hope, um, not reason to celebrate, but, um, uh, so I think there is, and I'm actually, there aren't yet courses in the history of racism or the history of race science in medical schools to my knowledge. And if they are, it's very new. I mean, there might be isolated ones, but none where it's like a requirement. Um, but I've, I've started to, I, a colleague of mine in, who works in a medical school, we're actually working on a co-authored piece on trying to advocate for such a, just such a thing. Um, but also there is these, these reckonings and they're increasingly new. Yale just announced a medical school, stu- a study of their medical school of slavery, um, or just hired folks to start doing it. Um, uh, UPenn and, and folks like Dorothy Roberts, uh, her voice, there are, so it's a lot of, sorry, I'm trying to, uh, there are people in prominent places in a way there just weren't 50 years ago making this case. Um, right. Dorothy Roberts at the University of Pennsylvania who's very prominent. Um, Alondra Nelson is a really great scholar of racial science uh, um, in the present and also wrote a fantastic book on the Black Panther Party's health program. She actually works in the Biden administration. You know, we can talk about how much faith we have in that, but that's a difference uh, or that administration at large. But I think there, this is a conversation that's starting to happen. Um, and, and that is not, you know, that's really, it's, it is a big step from the 1850s. It's not, you know, awareness will buy you not much, but it is something like it, that, that is a required step to actually getting this. And I think, and so I think where there is hope, is that there is an increasing, I think, discourse on the need for a more egalitarian system of distributing healthcare, even those Medicare drug pricing reforms that are supposedly going to pass could be helpful. Um, and then I think in the medical school, there, there is, I think, on the one hand, there's a lot more willingness to have these conversations, but like a lot of institutions with lots of money, there's a lot of fear on what, uh, how it will look. And that, but I should say there were a couple of big victories recently. Like the university of Pennsylvania has committed to repatriating the Morton skull collection, which has more than a thousand skulls and they're all reused for racial science ends. Harvard has started to discuss this idea and been much more public with its collections of human remains, which were taken from around the world, you know, preying on war, violence, um, much like what uh, Jim Downs talks about, uh, but but just with human remains rather than living people. Um, so I think th- there's a, there's space now. Uh, whether or not that will close again, let's hope not. But I think that's where there's there is a lot of optimism is that these conversations are happening and they're happening with medical faculty in medical schools as well as in the humanities. And when it's just happening in the humanities, that's good, but it doesn't it's not going to change people's treatment until it, it starts entering the medical school. So that's where I think there is, there is some hope, but it, it's, it's slow, slow, slow gains. 
put it that way. Um, and we just have to keep talking about it, keep hammering home that this is a fiction invented in the 18th century. Why are we using this to diagnose people today? Sure. Absolutely. I think, um, your book is, is, is a part of the change that we hope to see. And maybe one day medical schools will begin to assign books like this, mm-hmm. as well as courses on the subject, since it's long-term impact on um, the health of a significant segment of the population. So let's, as we conclude here today, um, what tell us a little bit about your your current research. What's next for you? What's the next book? Well, I am also been very excited to, to be teaching and focusing on that this year, but I've started work on a, a kind of side project or, or what was a, a little bit of this book about people whose skulls get collected. I wanted to uh, flip the script of the first book and tell the history of the medical school from their vantage point. So I'm, I'm currently working on the very early stages of a series of microhistories of people like that Khoisan man from South Africa who ends up at the P.T. Barnum exhibit, telling his story as a way of understanding medical school's history from the perspective of the people they affect. So um, whereas this, this first book is very much a structural history of how these ideas take hold, my next project is, is trying to really focus and humanize um, you know, I don't want to deny them of agency, but the victims of the science whose, whose options were conscripted by racism and limited and ended up somehow um, through theft, through uh, war, their final resting place being at Harvard's medical school. So not optimistic, but, but um, again, but uh, um, kind of on the same, uh, same path, but really trying to humanize the people that the science sought to turn into objects, into people to exploit and also put the history of slavery in the African diaspora in um, conversation with things like Western expansion in the U.S. and Native American extermination, um, as well as uh, kind of rising uh, American um, uh, ex- economic expansion in the Pacific world. Um, so, so trying to put a, a series of stories of racialized people who end up in Harvard School Collection into a narrative of the U.S.'s growing kind of imperial interests and, and how that also will shape the race construct to not just be solely a domestic institution, but also one that can be applied to international politics. Um, yeah, so, so very much heading down the same road, but trying to, to center the, the, the other side of the story, the people affected by the science. Sure, and it's very important work. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for joining me today and uh, taking up enough of your time. So, but I want to thank you for joining me on this week in Black History, Society, and Culture. Thank you.